everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bad on Politics. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And today we are being joined by Stacey Abrams to talk about voting rights. This is so exciting. I know. Um, for those of you who maybe are, are just jumping into this episode, Bad on Politics is our monthly bonus episode series where we talk to a political expert and ask them uh, the basic questions about a topic to get up to speed and to understand what's going on. I feel like all too often, politics is really overwhelming. The news cycle is just so nonstop that it's really hard to understand an issue and and know where to start. And we're not experts, so we figured we would talk to some. And and hopefully these conversations are useful to you, too, to understand what's going on in the 2020 election and to help you create an informed opinion. Yeah. So today we're so we're pinching ourselves. We're so excited to have Stacey Abrams with us. So Stacey Abrams is a New York Times bestselling author, a serial entrepreneur, a nonprofit CEO, and political leader. After serving for 11 years in the Georgia House of Representatives and seven as Democratic leader. So in 2018, Abrams became the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia, winning more votes than any other Democrat in the state's history. Abrams was the first black woman to become the gubernatorial nominee for a major party in the United States. And she was the first black woman and first Georgian to deliver a response to the State of the Union. After witnessing the gross mismanagement of the 2018 election by the Secretary of State's office, Abrams launched Fair Fight to ensure every American has a voice in our election system through programs such as Fair Fight 2020, an initiative to fund and train voter protection teams in 20 battleground states. So today we have Stacey Abrams with us. Leader Abrams, I am so excited to talk to you today about voting rights. Thank you for having me. Excited to talk about voting rights. So first, maybe can you tell us a little bit more about Fair Fight and specifically about Fair Fight 2020? Sure. So in the wake of the 2018 election, which uh, was when I thought maybe I could become the governor of Georgia, we had a extraordinary turnout among voters. We had voters of every race and community show up. We actually outperformed every Democrat in Georgia history. And despite that, we found ourselves on election night wondering what the outcome would be. Because at the same time that we were doing our level best to increase access, my opponent was doing everything in his power to decrease participation. And we hit a stalemate on election night where the Associated Press refused to call the election. I went home for the next 10 days where I figured out that because my opponent was the guy running the race, it was likely that he was going to win. So I did some brooding. I went through the stages of grief spent a lot of time in anger, and then decided to move to a new stage that I call plotting. And I started trying to figure out if I didn't become governor, what work could I do? Because the reality is that I didn't run for office for a title. I ran so I could do work to help people. Fair Fight was born in that 10-day period because I realized that one of the most essential things I could do was make sure what happened to the voters who tried to vote for me or voted for me and didn't have their votes counted that that would never happen to another Georgian or another American. Uh, The reality is elections aren't about politicians. Elections should be about people and what they need. And what happened in my election, what we saw happen is that people were pushed aside for power. Fair Fight is the organization we started in Georgia to fight back. And 
knowing that Georgia wasn't the only state to face this, we expanded our work into Fair Fight 2020, which is a more political arm. And we are now in 18 states. We were in a few states last year, uh, but we're in 18 states this year working to make sure that no matter where you are, if you're in a battleground state, we're going to be there to help protect your right to vote. That's incredible. Leader Abrams, are you able to share some specific examples of voting rights issues from the 2016 or 2018 elections? Certainly. And I think what's helpful for people to think about is we were all taught about the civil rights movement. And we tend to think about voter suppression in the context of billy clubs and hoses and dogs and angry law enforcement telling you you're not going to vote. Well, the Voting Rights Act, for the most part, stopped that from happening. But what is new and what became much more aggressive after the 2013 decision by the Supreme Court that said that racism no longer exists and elections are fine, uh, was that we saw a resurgence of voter suppression. The problem is it looks different. It has three pieces. Can you register and stay on the rolls? Can you get access to a ballot? And does your ballot count? And so in 2016, we saw this happening across the country, although we weren't paying as much attention to it. But we have nine states in the country that by law can purge voters. And what that means is they can take you off of the rolls. They can say that you haven't voted in enough. You haven't voted in enough recent elections and you can be removed. This is the only right in America where you can lose your right to vote simply because you don't use it. I don't go hunting on Saturdays, but no one has ever said, now you have lost your Second Amendment rights. Yeah. And the worst part is that while only nine nine states have it actually formally on the books, but 44 states actually by practice do this. And so one form of voter suppression just looks, it's essentially you're, you're told that because you didn't vote in enough elections, someone has decided that your right to vote should have to get reset. And the problem is when they reset your right to vote, you have to go through the whole process again, meaning you have to go register again. We have states like Georgia that use a system called exact match, where they make it even hard for you to register. In Georgia in 2016 and again in 2018, there was this law on the books that said that actually it wasn't even a law. It was a a process used by the secretary of state, the guy who ran against me for governor. And what he put, what he implemented is that when you fill out your application, let's say you're a woman who has gotten married. And your last name is Jones Smith, but you don't put a hyphen between it because you don't think you need one. Well, in Georgia, you can't have spaces in your last name. So they run the words together or they erase Jones altogether. So your driver's license just says Helen Smith, but your application to vote says Helen Jones Smith. They will match those two. And because they don't match exactly, they will tell you you can't register to vote. They never tell you why. And in Georgia, that disproportionately affected people of color and women. It was so bad that in 2018, 53,000 people were denied the right to register in Georgia because of that system. Oh my gosh, gosh, that's shocking. Now, another problem is voter ID. And that comes under, can you access a ballot? Because voter ID is what they require. When you come in to vote, they say, show us your ID. Let's be clear. Throughout the history of voting in America, you've always had to show ID. The issue isn't, do you have to show ID? It's what kind of ID can you show? What's happened in the last 20 years, and it really started around 2005, 2006, is it wasn't just enough to show the multiple forms of ID that people have often used. It was certain states started to require stricter and stricter forms of ID. And they were looking for forms of ID that it was harder for poor people 
for elderly people and for people of color to get access to. So for example, in Wisconsin, in 2016, an elderly woman, she was 100 years old. She had lived in Wisconsin for more than 30 years. And she had voted in elections in Wisconsin, but they changed their voter ID law. When they changed the law, she went to get the new ID and they told her she had to have an original copy of her birth. The problem was she was born in Missouri during segregation. And like a lot of people born during segregation, if you were black, you couldn't be born in a hospital, which means you didn't get an original copy of your birth certificate. So oh despite having a 30 year history of voting, the state of Wisconsin told her she could not prove that she, who she was, even though she had She had been using her Wisconsin driver's license and her Wisconsin ID, but because she couldn't meet this new stricter standard, because it was impossible to meet the standard, they denied her the right to vote and she was not permitted to vote for the first time in 30 years in the state of Wisconsin. And so when people hear, oh, you you have to have an ID to buy beer or to get on a plane. Yeah, but the difference is how strict is the rule for the kind of ID? And what's been happening is they've made it harder and harder to get through that filter. The last thing is, can you get your ballot counted? I like to refer to that as Florida. (laughs) We've heard all the stories about how hard it's been to vote in Florida. But in 2018, Florida had one of the highest rates of voters who applied for absentee ballots that never arrived. Or when they arrived and were sent back, they were discarded and rejected. And that's because of something called the signature mismatch. When you fill out an absentee ballot, you usually have to sign across the back saying, this is my ballot and I filled it out which is great. The problem is when they get your signature, they have these volunteers or these poll workers who have never studied forensic science trying to match your signature to your driver's license or to some piece of paper you'd signed previously. The problem is my signature doesn't match from Kroger to CVS. And most people's signatures differ based on the kind of implement you use, the time of day, your age, and it's junk science. Nobody, no forensic scientist believes that the average person can legitimately tell the quality of an of a signature, but they were using this to reject thousands of ballots, and therefore people weren't allowed to vote. That's voter disenfranchisement, voter suppression, one hundred one. Wow. So I know from the Fair Fight website that I was looking at this morning that you say that voter voting rights issues disproportionately affect voters of color, and you you gave a few examples of that, but also young voters. Why is that? So young voters tend to be less likely to drive, so they are less likely to have IDs that currently qualify. And we know in states where young voters have been important in changing the outcome of elections, states have made it harder and harder for them to vote. And and here's an important thing to note. Voter suppression may target certain communities, and it may be promoted primarily by Republicans in the last 20 years. But when you break the machinery, when you make it hard for people to vote, it affects you whether you're Democrat or Republican. And so, for example, in New Hampshire, because so many young people go to college in New Hampshire and they come from other New England states, the state of New Hampshire changed the laws last year to say that if you're a young person who is attending a college, you have to domicile your vehicle in the state. Now, what that means is that your parents who let you borrow a car that they did not give you, that they have to transfer ownership to you to register the car in the, in the state of New Hampshire. Most families are not going to do that because they may like you, but they don't like you that much. <laughs> wow. And so there, there are a series of laws that they've passed that make it more difficult for college students to be able to vote where they live for nine months out of the year and where they pay taxes for nine months out of the year. In Texas and in Florida, because Florida, again, is one of my favorite places, You've we've seen the laws change around early voting and voting on campus. In Florida, 
they passed a law in 2019. So in 2018, there was a lawsuit and they allowed colleges to have voting locations on campus. It was fantastic. 60,000 people took advantage of those on-campus voting locations. I think it was 60,000 more than it had previously done so. Um, If I'm wrong about the numbers, just know it was an order of magnitude that was really important. Sure. It was so important that in 2019, the state legislature passed a law saying you can't do that anymore. So whatever it was, it was too much for them. And you got to remember, a lot of elections in Florida are decided by 10,000 to 15,000 votes. So 60,000 votes is a big deal. Yeah. So the law they passed said that you cannot have voting locations on college campuses if you do not have adequate parking for every potential voter. The Hmm. reality is college campuses tend to have restricted parking because they're college campuses. You have permitted parking. And the law was saying, oh, you have to have unpermitted parking. So anyone who wants to can use it which meant that you either completely shifted your entire parking system and throw the college campuses into chaos, or you couldn't have a voting place. Wow. I had no idea about some of these rules around colleges. No, wait, what about voters of color? So voters of color are the most prevalent target of voter suppression techniques, in part because they're in the United States, there is a direct correlation between poverty and race. And, And that's just, it's true unless we get to elect people who actually want to disconnect those things by solving poverty and acknowledging race. So until we get to nirvana, we've got to deal with where we are. And so uh, as I pointed out in Georgia, we had exact match, which disproportionately, when I say disproportionately affected people of color, in 2018, that 53,000 people I mentioned, 70% were black. We know that in North Dakota, they passed a law that required voter IDs to have residential addresses, okay? The problem is if you live on an Indian reservation in most parts of the country, the addresses are only allocated by the the county or the state. But if you live on tribal land, they don't have formal addresses because they're not part of the formal county or city system. And so in North Dakota, because a Democrat had won a Senate race in 2012, they activated this law in 2018 and said that all of these Native Americans of multiple tribes had to have residential addresses on their ID. Here's the problem. The very counties where they lived refused to give them their addresses. So they were told to meet a standard that the state refused to meet. But because they could not meet the standard, they could not vote. When this went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court refused to block the law because they said, well, yeah, it will disproportionately harm Native Americans, but it won't disproportionately harm North Dakota because the rest of the folks were white and the only group that was going to be harmed was Native American. In Arizona, you have the issue of vote by mail because a lot of rural communities need to vote by mail because they don't have access to a polling place. If you're rural Latino or rural Native American, you don't have a car and you have terrible roads. And so you need to be able to vote by mail. Well, in Arizona, what they did is that in 2018, well, it's been true for a while, but it became even more egregious. They require that your absentee ballot be received by election day, not postmarked. The problem is, if you live in one of the rural parts of Arizona, you when you drop your letter in the mail, your ballot in the mail, it can be routed through New Mexico or Utah before it comes back to Arizona. And you have no control over when the mail is delivered. And so you might have to vote weeks in advance of information or opportunity 
in order to be a participant in those elections. And in Arizona, they know it disproportionately affects Latino and Native American voters. And this is true across the country. In Wisconsin, there was a, they knew that the disproportionate effect of their voter ID law was going to be that African Americans were going to be the least likely to be able to meet the laws. In North Carolina, when they started to eliminate early voting, they did so because so many Black people voted after church in 2008, and they did not care for it. Wow. This is, like, you're blowing, I feel like I sound like an idiot, but you're completely blowing <laughs> my mind. No, no, no. This is how voter suppression works, because we have 50 different states. We don't have one single federal administration of elections that everyone has to follow. And that's why voter suppression is so effective. It's because most humans aren't going to spend their days and nights trying to memorize all the voting laws in 50 different states. I only learned about it because, well... I made it my mission. And I recently got to write a book about it. And the book I wrote is exactly this conversation. It is that for the average person, we believe our democracy is for everyone. We know there are going to be rules so that only the eligible get to vote. And we don't want people who shouldn't be allowed to vote to cast ballots. But the reality is voter fraud doesn't exist. The Trump administration in 2017 convened a voter fraud task force, and they disbanded it before they had to issue their report because they didn't want to have to put out a report that said there is no voter fraud. So they just evaporated it. So outside of just awareness, how how do we fix these issues? Well, I'm glad you asked. So in June, I'll have a book that comes out. It's called uh, Our Time Is Now. And I'm only plugging it because that's the whole point of the book. We Please can't fix plug it. it. <laughs> thank you. We're excited. We thank you. We can't fix what we don't know. And now is the time to fix it because the more information the average voter has about not only what's right, but what's wrong, we can hold the leaders accountable because right now, and, and having been a part of the political class for a fairly long time, I can tell you most folks want to do what's right, but it's easy to get tricked into doing what's wrong because you get seduced by the power of being in office or being someone. And the reality is we forget that elections aren't about candidates. Elections are about people being able to choose their leaders and set the direction of their lives. So number one, we need folks to pay attention to what's happening in Congress right now. The COVID-19 pandemic is not going to disappear conveniently by election day. And what we saw happening on, August, on April 7th in Wisconsin, where people were forced to risk their lives to go and vote, should never happen in the United States of America. But it happened because our Supreme Court basically refuses to believe that there are bad actors or doesn't care about it. I don't know what their problem is, but they keep taking making the wrong decision. And because we have a president who said that if everyone who's eligible to vote voted, he couldn't win re-election. When you say the quiet part out loud, our job is to believe him. And that is to hold all of our congressional leaders accountable for putting in place for this election protections to defend the right to vote. That means that the federal government should fund and insist upon access to vote by mail by as many as we can. Because here's the reality. Vote by mail is safe, but it's not accessible to everyone. And we need to change the law so that for at least this election, everyone has the same opportunity. Because if you think about a whole, think about 100 people all bunched up together to get inside a polling place. If we have vote by mail, we can send 75 of those people home. They never even have to get in line. They get to vote by mail, they're done. The 25 who remain, 
those people are likely disabled because they have to come in to vote because they need the machines. They have language barriers, so they need someone to help them. They are homeless, which means they couldn't have received an absentee ballot. And we have a lot of folks who are being evicted and foreclosed upon who will not have stable housing by then. We have folks who didn't get a chance to register until late, and so they need to come in to cast their ballot. And we'll have some people who asked for an absentee ballot but never got it, and this will give them a chance to vote anyway. But we're all safest if as many people as possible vote from the safety of their homes as opposed to being bunched together in a lot. So number one, call your congressional leaders and ask them to pass ballot safety in the next COVID package. Number two, call your local county leaders because most elections are administered at the county level. Ask them what they're doing to make sure you're safe. People will behave better when they know folks are watching. And the average citizen, we want things to just work by the way government's supposed to work is we shouldn't have to think about all this. That's why we hired folks. But sometimes you have to remind people that they work for you. It's, I think about it like, you know, if I owned a grocery store, I would not leave a 13-year-old in charge and hope that everything's going to be fine when I get back. We shouldn't do that with our elected officials either. So we should call and check in and say, are you doing the right thing? And tell me what you're doing to make this safe and fair. If we do those two things, we're doing great work. And the third is to make sure that anyone you know who is eligible to vote, make sure they're registered and make sure they're ready. We assume that because we pay attention, other people do. But the reality is, Folks live complicated lives. They're worried about whether they're going to eat, where they're going to, if their job is going to still be around. And they don't always think about the connection between the people they hire to be their elected officials and what then happens to their lives after those elections occur. We know that the connection is direct. The better your leaders are, the better your lives are. And so we need to make sure our friends and family are registered to vote and that they take advantage of that vote. Because from school board all the way to president, we are putting people in charge of our future and we need our futures to be safe. That's such great actionable advice. Um, Now, what about this current census? We were curious how that's going to impact elections and government representation. I'm glad you asked. So during my 10 days off, uh, uh, so in my 10 days between election day and my um, non-election day or my non-concession day, I created Fair Fight, but I also created Fair Count. Fair Count is designed to make sure we have an accurate census. And it's an organization that was supposed to work in Georgia, but has now become a national organization. We know that we think about elections as the way politics gets done. But what we haven't paid enough attention to is that the biggest input for our democracy comes from our census. We think about it this way. You can have the best recipe, but if you don't have all the ingredients, then what you make may not be what you intended. And the ingredients for democracy are the census. The census tells us who's here, where they live, what they need, and how much it's going to cost. We spend about $1.5 trillion per year. But if we don't have an accurate census, if people of color aren't counted, if immigrants aren't counted, if rural communities aren't counted, if children under five aren't counted, all of those communities that are likely to be undercounted, if they're not included, then when we make the decisions about allocating those dollars, the money never gets to where it needs to be. But also political power is allocated through the census. We have 435 members of Congress, but where they represent gets shifted around. So every 10 years, we count everybody. And then the states that have more people that got more people over the last 10 years, they may pick up representatives. And those who have fewer people, they actually lose representation. You can't go below one, but you can lose, you can have 20 and drop down to 17. And so reapportionment 
is directly tied to the census count. But what's also tied are the ways the political lines that govern how we vote are drawn. That's what we call redistricting. And people have heard the term gerrymandering. Gerrymandering means when you draw political lines so that politicians get to pick their voters. And that means they draw the line so they push out voters they don't like, or they divide those voters up so that they they can never have enough power to make a decision. So gerrymandering is when politicians pick who they want. But good redistricting is when voters get to pick who they need. And that's what we should be moving towards. And so if people participate in the census, we will have an accurate count and we will know where the power should be and where the money should go. If we have an undercount, then the same communities that struggle will struggle even more, and the communities that have been doing great will continue to do even better. And I've put it this way. If you've enjoyed the last 10 years of governance with the loss of reproductive choice and the constraints on who has access to SNAP benefit and the way our immigration laws have worked, if you thought all that's great, then don't participate in the same. <laughs> if you think it's a problem, then the way we pick the people who make the decisions for the next 10 years is the 2020 census. And like the 2020 election, there is no do-over. If you do not get counted, you do not count. So go fill out your census. Absolutely. And let me let me do very quick last. Yeah. Number one, it's safe. There's a myth that somehow they're going to use this information against you. If you have a utility bill or cell phone, they already know how to find you. Filling out the census just tells them what you need. Number two, they cannot sell your information or use your information against you. It is against federal law. And this law has not been broken since 1790. It costs five years in prison and $250,000 for every time any bit of information is delivered. And there's never been anything important enough for that. But more importantly, the way the data is aggregated, you, you don't get individual information for 72 years. I'm 46. I am still not old enough to see myself in a single census. And then number three, it is not just about you. It is about your community. I talked to a census person who talked about this community that needed a park because their kids were running in the streets because they literally had nowhere to go. When they applied for the grant to build the park, they were denied. And the reason they were denied was that this low-income community didn't participate in the census. And when it came time to allocate parks, parks were allocated based on the population. And even though everyone knew they had more than enough people, because they didn't fill it out, they literally were invisible and they could not qualify for the grant. Wow. Um, um, so the last thing we wanted to ask you was about foreign interference in elections. So this was the huge story in, tw- in the 2016 election. How are we making sure this is prevented in the 2020 election? We are not because Mitch McConnell and, and Donald Trump refused to take action. So that's why everything else is so important. Election security is one of the key ways that they undermine the 2016 election. Unfortunately, because it is foreign, you can't have a piecemeal solution state by state. You have to have federal action. And despite being told by all of our intelligence agencies that action is necessary, the Senate leader has refused to take action. In fact, has blocked multiple bills. But the fact that we can't stop it doesn't mean we can't mitigate it. You can mitigate it by sharing good information. So one of the ways misinformation and disinformation work is that it goes unchallenged. But when you see something, say something. If something comes across your feed that looks like crazy, report it. Because every one of the social media groups have said they will do something about it. We'll see if they do. Let's put them, let's hold them accountable. Tell them when you see something that just is not right. But it's also about taking that opportunity to share correct information with everyone who's in your feed so that they know what's right. But the most effective way to do this is to overwhelm the polls with people who want to do 
do right. Voter suppression and misinformation and election interference work best when you have a small universe of people you have to deal with. So part of the goal is to scare people out of participating or convince them it's not worth it. The way to win is to overwhelm the system. There are those Republicans who, just like me, who say, well, you know, you had the highest, I had the highest turnout of voters of color in the history of Georgia, which is true. And they said that proves there's no voter suppression. That's like saying because more people get in the water, there are no sharks. <laughs> Anybody who's seen Jaws knows that's just not true. We have to, but if there are more people in the water, more people are going to make it to shore, more people will survive, and hopefully more people can report where the shark is so you can go and get it. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to get in the water, save as many people as we can, but also identify where the problems are so we can elect people who will fix them for the long term. Leader Abrams, I, I learned so much today. I knew that voting <laughs> rights were important, but I, I feel like I didn't know enough about them. And I feel I feel fired up. Can you tell people where they can learn more and where they can find you on social media? Thank you very much. I can always be found at Stacey Abrams on Facebook, Twitter. I think I'm on Instagram. Yes, I know I'm on Instagram. Uh, and you can read more and learn more about the census at Fair Count or faircount.org. You can learn more about Fair Fight at Fair Fight or go to our website at Fair Fight. Just go to fairfightaction.com or just fairfight2020.com. But more than anything, just know that you have the power to fix America. It is our power, which is why they're trying to make sure we don't use it. And the best revenge we can have is by using it to make America right. Thank you so, so much. This was incredible. Thank you guys for having me. This has been fun. Wow, Becca, that was amazing. I can't believe Stacey came on our podcast. I'm completely pinching myself. Um, we hope you're just as excited as we are. If you have topics that you'd like to see addressed on this series, uh, we do one once a month. So shoot us a DM on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. Come join our Facebook group. Search Bad on Paper on Facebook. Shoot us an email, badonpaperpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next month. Yeah, see you next month. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you.